expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Gavin? Yeah, hello. And from Taichung, we're joined by Compass Magazine's Donovan Smith. Donovan? It's good to be here. So we've got a great show for you today. We'll be talking constitution reform, stalled constitution reform, that is. New limits passed on emissions in Taiwan's, along with a dose of local politics. But we'll be starting off first with national politics. And uh, to start that off, well, she did it. Last weekend, Legislative Speaker Hong Shouju passed the 30% threshold in her party's presidential polling with flying colors. And Wednesday, KMT members unanimously affirmed Hong's bid to stand in the 2016 presidential election. So that's two hurdles right there. Uh, Sounds pretty final, but there's actually is one more hurdle for her to cross. Uh, But before we get to that, let's uh, back up to those polling numbers for just a second. Uh, Now, this has been out for a few days, but just to break it down for anyone who hasn't been following along, uh, the headline number here is 46.2%. That's her overall approval rating. Uh, If you dig into the numbers a little bit deeper, they show that Hong is doing a bit better among KMT voters than the general public. No surprise there. Uh, And but still, these are very strong numbers. Uh, And if they can believed, uh, that might be a big if uh, much more strong than we were expecting. Also had strong numbers out Wednesday. A TV BS poll actually put Hong ahead of her competitor, DPP chairman Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, and so, Gavin, going back to our show last week, uh, you thought that she would pass through this thing, but you, you, you weren't expecting it to be quite this strong. Uh, what do you think is behind these numbers? What's, what's, making her, uh, what's, what's, what's making her do better than we expected? Yeah, I think I predicted between 35 and 40 percent. Obviously, she got higher than that. And well, there is speculation that the pan-green camp are playing around with the polls. That being, you know, when these func- these polling companies telephone people, people are simply saying what they want to hear. Sort of say, yes, I'll vote for her, whether they will or not, of course, is another matter. But then, of course, maybe she's just got support within the KMT now because the KMT realized there are no other choices for a presidential candidate. And people are kind of rallying behind her. Basically, yeah. Uh, Donovan, what did, what did you see here? Well, I think actually Gavin, Gavin's numbers on the 35 to 40 are actually closer to the reality. Um, the, uh, if you take out the, uh, on the, on the original KMT poll, where she got the 46 some odd percent, the KMT, uh, removes all undecideds, uh, from that, which means that her actual support was closer, closer around 40. Uh, and then of course the TVBS poll had her at about 42. So Gavin's, uh, estimate was, it was pretty close actually. Um, now what I found really striking, uh, about the TVBS poll numbers, which uh, they released a lot more uh, detail than the KMT poll did, polling did. And I, what I found really striking was two, two different numbers. One is that her, is, is that Tsai trounced her, uh, basically anybody under 40, uh, by 20 points. However, she was way ahead. She had 54% support. Uh, and this was her top demographic, were people between the ages of 50 and 59. And what I found really striking about that is these are people who would have graduated high school in the mid-70s to the mid-80s, right when Taiwan was at its peak, booming 
economically. But older generations, she had less support, and I think that was because they saw a little bit more close up the white terror era and uh, and all of that. Um, and younger people don't get her because they grew up sort of, you know, in the aftermath of the Wild Lilies and the Dunghui era. So it's very interesting. She seems to be with, because she, she's using a lot of very old old school vocabulary, very old school KMT vocabulary, and she seems to be rallying a very particular nostalgic demographic. So it's a little bit more complicated than to just say there is a generational divide. Maybe we should say there's generational divides. Yes. Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. So now looking a bit forward, it's not quite a done deal. Uh, She needs to make it through the July 19th Party Congress. Uh, But just based on what I'm seeing, it does seem like the party is starting to rally around her. So at this point, is this just a formality or is this a real hurdle for her to cross? I think they're just going to rubber stamp her, aren't they, on the day when they sit down in Taipei and they have their Congress. I presume it's in Taipei. They'll just simply rubber stamp her, I believe, because all the Kemti heavyweights will be there and they'll be simply trying to push for party unity ahead of the elections which means basically endorsing her candidacy. Is that what you see, Donovan? Is the party really uh, just rallying around her at this point? Well, I mean, Zhu Liduan, uh, sorry, Eric Chu and uh, Ma Ying-Ju have already come out and say they strongly supported her. And, of course, Wong's been sort of beating around the bush for quite a while. So uh, as long as there's no big move uh, from the center-south politicians or Wang Jinping, then, yeah, I think they're going to rubber stamp her. Now, we were speaking a second ago about uh, age stratification, but there is in Taiwan also geographic stratification in how uh, the way people vote. And uh, I have been hearing a little bit from uh, news reports this week that there's some concern among southern KMT lawmakers that having Hong Xiuju, who's seen as a, a, a deep blue candidate at the top of the ticket, uh, might hurt folks uh, lower on the ticket, making it through uh, a race. Uh, Donovan, have you been hearing anything along those lines? Yeah, and it's fairly predictable. I mean, you know, I mean, essentially, the what used to be called the mainstream faction or the pro-localization KMT, uh, and they're, they're often faction-based. And of course, they're center and south, are big supporters of Wang Jinping, and they've they've never they've never gotten along with the the Taipei-based mainlander elites at all. And and they're, I think that they were hoping for Wang Jinping maybe at the head of the ticket or at least you know some presence, which suggested that the the elites and the party were were listening to them or you know or, or cared whether or not they could be elected because of course who, whoever heads the ticket is a big it will have a big influence on who the voters are going to vote for locally in the legislative elections as well so i think that they feel kind of abandoned uh by the by the elites and to make matters worse is that uh, hong has said she's looking for somebody who shares her ideals and now she is. She does say that she's looking for somebody who's male, younger, and from the center and south, but who also shares her ideals. That's a really small pool. So um, good luck with that, I'm afraid. Uh, all right. So as promised, we're going a bit more local with the next one. Moving over to the race in Zhanghua first. And uh, Donovan, you've been telling us that this uh, might be quite a telling election about the current state of the DPP. What's going on there? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, the KMT is, is kind of melting down, and, and this has been is, is that they're slowly losing the, uh, and it's going to speed up, I think, quite rapidly. Is the factions are, are, have been bolting from the KMT <clears throat> now? In but in the, the thing is, is 
the a lot of them are moving to the DPP, and of course the DPP also has kind of a, a mixed reaction to them. Same with the uh, KMT elites. Now the DPP elites are kind of a little uncomfortable with this influx of, of um, factional politicians. Now what's happening in the Zhanghua One, which is very interesting, is the the leader in the polling, and normally the DPP uh, goes on the polling in their primaries, is uh, Chen, Chen Jinping, who, who lost by two-tenths of a percent in the 2012 election representing the DPP, barely lost that one. So he, this would be the natural, and, and is ahead in the polling, so you'd think that this would be the natural candidate. Second in the polling is Lin, is Lin Yibang, who's the son of two, uh, two previous KMT lawmakers in the district. Now, the thing is, these two, the two that are leading the polling are both red faction candidates, both pan-blue originally. Chen Jinding is originally from the NPSU, uh, of course, pan-blue, and Lin Yibang is the son of two KMT lawmakers. But both of them have sort of shady pasts, I guess you could say. For example, Lin's father's out on jail and medical parole right now, and he himself has faced uh, vote-buying charges. Now, the party has actually gone with the person who was third in the polling, um, uh, 8% behind uh, Chen Jinding and also 4% behind uh, Lin. It looks like they're going to go ahead and nominate uh, Chen Wenbing, who is as actually a movie director and actor. And now, he's very idealistic. It total political novice. So this is a very interesting choice because they already have a candidate who just barely lost last time and is ahead in the polls. And they're not going with that with this candidate. So really the, the, the question is, is, is are they trying to send a message to the factions? Or are they trying to send a message to the more idealistic like the NPP or the SDP by choosing Chen Wenbin, who's much more in their sort of camp? Uh, or is this purely a local calculation? And that's really what, what's quite fascinating about it. Seems like uh, the DPP kind of has a lot of choices there. There's a, a lot of people that they could be aligning with, uh, so it seems like they have more good options than bad. Well, it depends on what you consider good. <laughs> You've got a novice idealist, uh, which is a risky thing because they, they're running against a popular ex-Lugang mayor uh, representing the KMT. So you're running a novice who's down in the polls, or you've got, and that's who they seem to be going with, but you've got two iffy factional politicians who seem to have a better shot. But, you know, I, I, the calculations going on in the DPP are, of course, it's pure speculation what's going on in their minds. And real quick, before we make it to the break, uh, can you give us a quick update? What's happening with former Mayor Hao Long Bean? Uh, he's got some big decisions to make as well, right? Yeah, and the the thing is, he's apparently, according to media reports, he's re, he's he's narrowed it down to uh, running in one of two districts, one in Taipei and one in Taichung. Now, of course, that's speculation, but that that seems to be where where it's centered on. Um, now, if he runs. The, and people seem to be leaning toward the Taichung Six. Nathan Battle over at Frozen Garlic, he he's he's predicting that he'll go with the Taichung Six district as well. Uh, that's his analysis, and I, I agree with him on this. The um, the Taichung Six is it it only turned pan green in 2012. It used to be a pan blue, consistently pan blue district. Uh, but Lin Jialong, uh, Taichung's current mayor, won that in 2012. And in the by-election, Huang Guosu, a, lo- a local popular city councilor, took it over, uh, con- keeping it in Pan Green Camp. So uh, his the calculation is is that 
that he can swing it back. I mean, mind Joe got a little over 50% there uh, in the 2012 presidential election. So there, the calculation is that he, he's a big enough heavyweight that he could tip it back Pam Blue. All right. Well, uh, lots of twists and turns to be followed down there. Uh, but to give our listeners' brains just a little bit of a break, I know that that was a lot to ponder on. We'll be taking a break right now. So we'll be back with a lot more after this. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news stories from around the island. Topping the second half, we're heading back to politics. Well, political breakdown, to be more precise. Inter-party negotiations over constitutional amendments failed this week, which, as it happens, was the last week before the body's summer recess, meaning that it will almost certainly miss the deadline to pass the amendments uh, so that they can be included in next year's January 16th presidential election as planned. That's what we were hoping would happen, actually. So uh, the word of the week is partisan breakdown. But this is all a little odd, considering the fact that there were a number of amendments both the KMT and DPP agreed upon, including lowering the voting age and lowering the minimum number of votes required for a party to get a legislator at large seat. Uh, so why the breakdown? Gavin? Depends who you believe. Apparently, according to KMT Chairman Eric Chu, the breakdown was caused by selfish interests of opposition lawmakers. And if you choose to believe the DPP, well, DPP Chairwoman Tsai Ing-wen basically blamed the KMT for not listening to public opinion, which led to a breakdown. So, depending who you believe, there's your story. Yeah, finger-pointing from uh, both parties. Donovan, there's also this issue of uh, bundling different reforms together, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're trying to mix and match. I mean, to break it all down, frankly, I think both parties are really relieved that this all broke down. I don't think either party really wanted any of those reforms. Uh, the KMT is going to get killed by under 18 voters. They were trying to bundle it with, um, so that you didn't have to vote according to your household registration, because after after the 9-1 elections last year, the young voters had two major complaints. One is they had to go, because they were often usually studying in college in other towns, they'd have to go back to their hometown, which they often couldn't afford, or there was no transportation, or whatever. Um, and so they had to go back to wherever their hukou was. And the second one is the, the voting age. So the, the DPP jumped on board with the voting age, and the KMT jumped on, the vo- uh, on both, uh, because they had an eye out on, on trying to get it so that uh, the Taishan, the ta- Taiwanese-based business, business people... The China-based business people. Sorry, yes. <laughs> Those two uh, could, could vote uh, remotely, and they figured they would win a, a majority of them. So, but of course, the DPP was adamantly against that. And the DPP, I don't think they really particularly wanted the under 18 all that much, even though they would do better than the KMT in that demographic. But a lot of them were going to go with the MPP or the SDP as well. So I think there were mixed feelings on that one. The, the lowering the threshold from 5% to 3% on the party list uh, vote, I think that very specifically, uh, both parties put that that number in years ago intentionally to shut out the PFP and uh, the TSU in the past 
to entrench both of their power against small parties. I don't think either one of them really wanted to lower that. I think that was just talk. Of course, the KMT did agree on the absentee voting issue. They did agree to make it only uh, only allowable in the Taiwan area. Yeah, that was a, that was a very late very late development. Yeah. Yes. Right. And so, uh, as you say, Donovan, uh, it does sound like both parties had something to gain, something to lose. I mean, their interests were very mixed up in all of these reforms. Um, but the party that's really receiving the majority of the blame, at least if you believe the people throwing eggs on the street, uh, is the KMT. There were a number of protests this week, and uh, their rage was uh, directed at the KMT. So are they the ones that are going to get stuck with uh, this mishap? Probably not. In the long term, you don't think so? No, I think in the long term, people will forget about it. In the next six weeks, probably people will forget about it, and there'll be another food scandal. But I'm just a pessimist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think Gavin's probably right. Except I think the the 5% dropping that to 3%, that might be... That's going to have major repercussions, I think, in this coming election. But I I honestly think that both, really both parties did not want these constitutional reforms to happen. I think that was lip service for the public. So is that it for constitutional reform uh, in in Taiwan at this point? Are there going to be any more efforts on that front? Well, they can't be, can they? if they, if they do, if they do move the presidential election back, but the DPP is not going to, they're not going to go for that. Well, they're not going to do that at all because the Central Election Commission has already come out and set the date. So that's fixed now. So there's, you guys don't see any chance that they're going to postpone any potential future referendum and, and try to do this again. This is just sunk for the foreseeable future. Probably the next eighteen months. All right. So, uh, well, that's one less thing that we uh, have to talk about. At least, last up today, we are going green. Or wait, no. We're passing laws with caps and deadlines and bureaucracy, but on paper, we're going green. This week saw the passage of the Greenhouse Gas Reduction and Management Act. The act set a long-term goal of carbon emissions to be reduced to less than half the level of 2005 by 2050 and authorize the Environmental Protection Agency to draft an action program for coping with climate change and a promotion project for greenhouse gas reduction. Uh, so this rolling out this law was uh, kind of, in a way, preparing for a, a large carbon summit that's coming up in Paris, right, Gavin? In December. In December. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Mm-hmm. That's what it's called, the UNFCCC. And it's taking place in Paris. And apparently this deal they plan to sign in Gay Paris is meant to replace the Kyoto Protocol. Which Taiwan is not a signatory to. Well, many countries aren't a signatory to that, are they? Some rather large countries aren't a signatory to that. <clears throat> yeah. I, I feel the fingers yeah. point to get my uh, my yeah. homeland right there. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but I, I guess the concern there would be that once uh, this Paris review goes in, uh, countries that are high emitters are going to be slapped with uh, they're going to be slapped with uh, international taxation. And who's going to who's going to find them? And who's going to enforce that law? I I guess they'll figure that out in Paris. <laughs> is the idea? I I don't think they'll figure out anything in Paris. But I do know this comment about the the, the, the law the, the the law here in Taiwan, which lawmakers passed last this week rather, looking at a reduction in emissions. There was a, there's a catch in that one though, because of course there's a great quote here from a DPP bod who said the goal of the new law could be could still be subject to change based on whatever they agree in December in Paris. Right, right, right. So, I mean, that's part of where we're at at this point, is it's still not a very defined uh, piece of legislation. And talking about I mean, global warming and whatever, yeah, there was a great piece last was it the, uh, last week where the Yunlin County Magistrate came out to ban... 
pet coke and coal burning in the county. Right. And then the Environmental Protection Administration turned round in an ironic twist of fate, said this, this law banning these things from being burnt could run counter to the Islands Pollution Act. <laughs> right. Well, they're basically claiming it as national, something that's under national jurisdiction, not local jurisdiction. Donovan, uh, what do you think is going to come out of these laws? Uh, I mean, they're so fuzzy at this point. Do you think that there's going to be uh, any reforms or steps taken because of this? Well, there's a couple of comments. I mean, first of all, they set the target at 2050, which is pr- practically meaningless. I mean, and that doesn't seem to like it's going to mean anything in the foreseeable future. But a couple things that, that, that I think are worth noting is that the cost of energy right now has, has been plummeting uh, straight across the board, whether it's uh, fossil fuels or whether it's um, renewables. And the, if there's, the, there's a curve that shows, the, the, for example, with the price of solar, it's going to be practically free in five to ten years. So it's going to be a pretty easy target to make, I think, in the long run. Um, so, but it, there, there's nothing in the law that really holds anybody's feet to the fire, so it, it's a kind of a toothless thing. The other thing I found interesting is that the, the, the law is to cut about 100, depending on the CNA or other reports, it's between 122.5 or 125 uh, metric tons. And uh, of, of of carbon emissions, if they were to shut down the Taichung power plant, which is the largest coal-fired plant in the world, that alone would be 30-some-odd, uh, just shy of 40, if memory serves, which would be somewhere between a quarter and a third of their target in one particular plant, if they were to shut that down. So as there is a question, of course, Donovan, if they close down that whopping great coal power plant down there, what they'll do for energy? Because, of course, there's an issue with the fourth nuclear power plant, and, of course, that's been mothballed at the moment, as they say. Energy and jobs. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, somebody, you know, I'm not saying that they're going to shut it down immediately because, obviously, there's no alternative to it right now. Um, but I'm, I just point out that if they did, uh, that would that would be a big chunk of their... Uh, so if they, if they come up with a plan to remove that by 2050, then they've gone a long, they, they've, they've gotten a long way toward reaching the goal. And just to give uh, our listeners a sense of... What they can expect in the coming months from uh, from this new legislation, uh, the minister uh, said the first stage of the act's enforcement would focus on calculating the maximum permissible amounts of emissions granted to each firm and ensuring that the establishment upload their emission data accurately. So we're not really talking about a slap in the face for industry. We're talking about a very incremental, we'll figure it out over a long period of time kind of thing. Annoying paperwork. <laughs> More annoying paperwork for everybody. All right, but... Uh, We are going to have to wrap up our show there. That's all the time we have today. You can leave your thoughts on this week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Manconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Yes, goodbye. And Donovan Smith, thank you as well. And thank you. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.